Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 570 for the 3rd of December, 2017. This week, whether it's Windows, Mac OS, or Linux, your operating system probably bugs you more about updates than you'd like. But ignoring update requests is a bad idea. After getting off to a strong start, Firefox faltered when Google introduced Chrome several years ago. The latest version of Firefox is out, and it's worth looking at no matter which browser you use now. In short circuits, Uber tried to cover up a data breach that affected 57 million users and drivers. Having been caught, they now say they're sorry. A request that appears to be from your email administrator isn't. It's just another fraud. But the creeps who create these things are getting better. In spare parts, only on the website. How about a Wi-Fi hotspot that looks like an umbrella? Or maybe a device that looks like brass knuckles but lets you type on your tummy. Waze teams up with Allstate Roadside Services. And a new app allows ophthalmologists to monitor patients at home. When you consider I'm surrounded by three Windows 10 computers, one running a slow ring version on the Insiders program, a Mac, and one that runs Linux Mint, you might expect that one system or another will pester me about updating something frequently. Well, you'd be right. These updates may seem bothersome. Skipping them, though, would be a big mistake. The Windows computers also run Ninehight, that's a utility that keeps track of updates needed by applications such as FileZilla, Notepad++, Skype, ImageBurn, MusicBee, IrfanView, 7-Zip, LibreOffice, PDF Creator, Java, Shockwave, and Google Earth. When any of those applications need an update, Ninite tells me about it and offers to install the update. There's also Adobe Creative Cloud, and it's nearly two dozen individual components the Creative Cloud application displays an alert when updates are available for any of the components. So, it's a rare day that passes without installing at least one update. I'm sometimes puzzled by the reluctance some people express when it comes to updating operating systems and applications. Regardless of the operating system on your computer, it is wise to install updates promptly. Let's consider Windows first. Often the updates for the operating system include security updates. These are flaws that malware and crooks can exploit. It's important to understand that applications and operating systems are written by people, and people sometimes miss flaws. It's also a good idea to realize that crooks spend a lot of time looking for anything they can use to break into your computer. Windows has flaws. So do some of the components that are used by various applications, things like ActiveX, .NET Framework, and Java. Browsers are also updated frequently, and nearly every browser update contains fixes for security flaws. Other updates are pushed out to fix bugs that can cause either the operating system or an application to malfunction. 
and updates also sometimes contain new features, as is the case for the annual Windows updates and updates for applications on your computer. It's true that any update can cause a problem for users. That's something I've seen on Windows, Mac OS, and Linux computers. But errors that are introduced as part of an update are usually addressed quickly by the developers. Microsoft's track record with updates is far better than it used to be, and despite the potential for problem, Windows users are almost always better off installing the updates sooner rather than later. Users can specify active hours. These are the times during which they don't want to be bothered by updates. By default, this is set from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. The operating system generally won't be restarted during these hours. Generally. There is an exception. If you turn the computer on at 8 a.m. and turn it off at 5 p.m., there's never any time the computer can be restarted to install the updates. In this case, Windows will eventually insist on restarting the computer during your active hours. Once an update has been downloaded and installed, you can specify the time that the computer will restart if that's needed. Those capabilities existed previously, but the Creator's Edition Fall Update has made some significant changes in how future updates will be installed. You'll find these changes under the Advanced Options near the bottom of the Update and Security panel of Settings. You can choose Give Me Updates for Other Microsoft Products when I update Windows. If you use Microsoft Office, I'd recommend turning that selection on so that Office updates will be installed as soon as they're available. The next selection allows you to choose when updates are installed. Two primary options exist. First is Semi-Annual Channel Targeted. That's the right choice for most people because the updates will be downloaded and installed as soon as they're available. The second is semi-annual channel. Corporate IT departments requested the ability to delay all updates for several months so that testing could confirm whether any proprietary applications would also need to be revised. That is the right choice for those situations and the choice for those who prefer to wait a few months before having the updates installed. You'll also be offered an option to delay feature updates. These are non-security updates, such as new capabilities. You can delay those for up to 365 days, also known as one year. You can delay quality updates. These are the ones that include security patches and bug fixes. You can delay them, but only for 30 days. And you can pause updates. If you want to eliminate all updates, select that and your updates will be turned off for 35 days. Moving along to Apple, although the Mac OS is generally perceived to be more secure than Windows, the Mac OS is just as insistent as Windows is when it comes to updates. Apple says that users who receive a notification that software updates are available can choose when to install the updates or ask to be reminded the next day. Mac users can adjust some security and software update settings, Users have the option of setting the Mac to install updates automatically for the operating system as well as for applications acquired through the App Store. It's also possible to visit the App Store and check for updates manually. Apple installs required security updates automatically unless you turn the feature off. My recommendation, don't do that. There are six options. I enable five of them on my Mac. First, automatically check for updates. That's the master switch. Turn that off 
and your Mac will receive updates only when you check for them manually. That seems like a bad idea. I turn that one on. Second, download newly available updates in the background. That can be a time saver because the Mac will prepare to install the updates and let you know when they're ready unless you choose to have them installed automatically. My recommendation here, turn that one on. The third option is called Install App Updates. This will cause updates for all applications downloaded from the App Store to be installed automatically. You'll still have to close an open app for the update to be applied, but apps that are not in use will be updated without notification. I'd turn that one on too. Fourth, install Mac OS updates. That will automatically install minor operating system updates from a .1 to a .2 release, for example. If the computer needs to be restarted to complete the process, you'll be notified before it happens. More significant updates, such as those from Sierra, which is 10.12, to High Sierra, 10.13, will not be installed automatically. You still have to approve any full version updates. So my recommendation here, turn that one on. And fifth, install system data files and security updates. If you turn that one on, it'll make sure that relatively frequent security patches are applied. Most of these don't require a system restart. Absolutely, turn that one on. And last, automatically download apps purchased on other Macs. If you have more than one Mac OS computer and you want to create a repository of all apps on a single computer, check that one. Otherwise, just leave it unchecked. Some applications, Microsoft Office, for example, will have their own procedures for acquiring updates. Because Office updates often have security implications, you'll want to set the Microsoft Update app to install update. The setting is available within any Office app, and there are three choices. First is manually check. Unless you remember to do this on a very frequent basis, I wouldn't use that. Automatically check, that's the one I use because Office checks in the background and automatically notifies me whenever I open any one of the apps. Or third, automatically download and install. You can use that option if you want the process to be entirely automatic. That probably would be a good choice. I don't use it, though, just as I don't use any automatic update of Apple software on a Windows computer. I just like to check these out myself before I install them. And then there's Linux. The various operating systems use different interfaces and procedures to install updates, but the underlying intent is the same for all of them. Correct programming errors and eliminate security threats. The numerous Linux distros have different faces, and there are different package managers. The package manager is the component that installs applications and updates. But the underlying component, the kernel, is the same regardless. Although each Linux distro may present its update information in a slightly different way, the reasons for updating both the kernel and the installed applications are the same for Linux as they were for Windows and the Mac OS. The three big reasons are these. Most kernel updates include security fixes to eliminate dangerous flaws. Your computer will always be safer and more secure with the latest version of the kernel. Kernel updates also fix bugs that may have caused applications to crash. Those who run Linux servers are sometimes reluctant to update the system until they have confirmed the changes won't have any adverse effect on their applications. But those who use Linux on a desktop or a notebook computer 
rarely see those kinds of problems. And driver updates come with kernel updates. Graphics drivers always seem to be the most problematic, no matter the operating system. When Linux has an update, you'll generally see a list of packages that will be updated. Mint, for example, displays a level number beside each proposed update. Those numbers range from 1 to 5. 1 is for certified packages, those that have been tested or are directly maintained by Linux Mint. Second are recommended packages, tested and approved by Linux Mint. Third are safe packages, not tested by Linux Mint, but considered to be safe. Four and five are the ones that cause some people a bit of heartburn. Four is unsafe packages, updates that could have a negative effect on the system. And five, dangerous packages. These are likely to have a negative effect on system stability, depending on the system hardware. And the cautions, levels four and five, apply mainly to Linux systems that are being used as servers. Individual users should probably still take any kernel updates, even if they're shown as level 4 or 5. That's what I did in a recent update, and you'll see a picture of that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Two kernel updates at a level 4. During the update process, the user can display a screen that shows what's going on in the background. If you're easily amused and have nothing better to do during the update process, you might want to watch the text scroll by, but you'll have to read fast. If you're easily alarmed, avoiding the verbose display would probably be a good idea because you'll occasionally see the words warning or error. For example, you might see warning, no support for locale, en underscore us dot utf8. Well, that's just a message referring to local language support. It's the result of changes that have been made to how localizations are stored. It's a cosmetic problem. No need for concern. If the installer has a serious problem, it'll let you know. So my recommendation, regardless of your operating system, just update it. The operating system on your computer really doesn't matter. What does matter is keeping it up to date. Updates can occasionally cause problems but all have been tested before being released. Hardware-related problems are less common on macOS computers. That's because the operating system will run legally only on Apple hardware. Linux and Windows systems both permit a larger variety of hardware, Windows more even than Linux, so waiting a week or two might be safe for all updates except those that are shown as critical security fixes. It's been a long time since Firefox began its quest to take over the browser market from Microsoft's Internet Explorer. It was November 2004 when Mozilla released Firefox 1.0. That followed more than two years of development and pre-1.0 releases. Computer geeks like me were excited because the browser was faster and considerably more secure than Internet Explorer 6. Those who didn't understand Firefox's advantages or didn't care stuck with Internet Explorer. Still, by 2008, Firefox had about a quarter of the browser market share. Internet Explorer had about 70%. The rest was split between Safari and Opera. At that time, Safari was still available for PCs. Then in September 2008, Google released the first version of Chrome. Within a year, Chrome had around 3% of the market, 
and Firefox continued to gain strength, reaching about 30% of the market. IE was down to about 60%. In 2010, Firefox hit 31% and never went higher. Chrome offered several advantages over Firefox, and it didn't have the memory leak that had plagued Firefox from the beginning. Well, today, Chrome has about 65% of the market. Internet Explorer and Microsoft Edge combined have around 13%. Firefox is at about 14%. Firefox, however, has a new version. And for the first time in many years, I'm running it as my primary browser. The newly released Firefox Quantum has real promise, but it might be too late. Will anybody even notice? Chrome has been my primary browser for several years. When Chrome starts, it loads 13 websites. So I set up Firefox to load the same 13 websites. Then I started watching system resources, particularly CPU usage and memory. I expected Firefox to use more resources than Chrome and for that old memory leak to cause available RAM to shrink over time. And guess what? It didn't happen. Firefox's consumption of both CPU resources and RAM was lower than Chrome's. I opened three more tabs in Firefox to make a total of 16 and closed two in Chrome, so it was down to 11. At that point, each browser was using about 2.2 gigabytes of RAM and 1 to 4% of the CPU. That was both unexpected and welcome. And even with so many tabs open, Firefox seems faster than Chrome. Mozilla claims huge speed differences that were doubtless achieved in a highly controlled environment. I didn't see the huge differences, but Firefox was perceptibly faster. I then opened more tabs. With 30 tabs open in Firefox, it finally started using a little bit more memory than Chrome with 11 tabs, and CPU usage stayed in the 3-5% range. You could say I was impressed. Even with 30 tabs open, navigation within any of the tabs still seemed to be faster than Chrome. Firefox has always been more customizable than Chrome, although Chrome has made some significant advances there. Firefox Quantum adds more interface customization, and a new feature allows the user to specify which app opens in response to clicking various kinds of links, from email and video files to images and zip archives. And if there's a Chrome extension that isn't available yet for Firefox, you can use a Firefox extension that allows running Chrome extensions in Firefox. If you haven't used Firefox for a while, now might be a really good time to update it and give it a try. And while you're at it, prepare to be impressed. short circuits, if you have ever driven for Uber or used Uber to take you somewhere, a great deal of information about you is on the computers operated by crooks. Uber made the breach public just before Thanksgiving, but they had known about it for more than a year. Uber says that your information is safe. Why do they say this? Well, they say that because they paid the thieves $100,000 to just delete the files. And apparently somebody at Uber thought that the crooks would actually take the $100,000 and then just delete the data. 
Hey, guys, these are crooks. They lie, they cheat, they steal. That's what they do for a living. And Uber thinks they'll just quietly delete the data? The breach affected information for about 57 million customers and drivers. Well, that was enough to get the attention of the Federal Trade Commission and the attorneys general in Connecticut, Illinois, Massachusetts, Missouri, and New York so far. Most states do have laws that require companies to notify regulators within a few weeks when they discover a data breach. Uber had known about the breach for more than a year, and it happened while Uber was under investigation by the Federal Trade Commission for failing to secure private customer data. If you've driven for Uber, the crooks have your license number. If you have used the service as a passenger, the crooks probably have your phone number, your address, and your name, possibly more. Consumers Union has been increasingly vocal about Internet security and the lax attitude of far too many companies when it comes to protecting information about their customers. Tim Marvin, a campaign manager for the nonprofit publisher, says Uber is just the latest in a string of prominent corporations to expose sensitive customer information. Our data security laws remain wholly inadequate to protect consumers from identity theft and other misuses of their data, he says. In the case of Uber, he says, the breach is even more troubling because the company has had multiple incidents and withheld this information from the public. Consumer Reports set up an online petition that urges Congress to investigate, and Marvin says the petition is important because until companies are compelled to institute strong security measures, these breaches are going to just keep on happening. If you sign the petition, you will be offered email updates from Consumers Union. If you don't want to receive those, just uncheck the opt-in box. There's a link to the online petition from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Email scams continue to improve, although they're still fairly easy to spot, the crooks are getting better at disguising them. I recently received a message from my webmail administrator, so I knew immediately the message was a fraud. I am my own email administrator, and I didn't send myself a message. But let's take a look at this one and deconstruct it. You'll see some images on the TechMatter Worldwide website. First, the message claims to be from TechBiter.com webmail, but the address is webs.com. Now, webs.com seems to be a legitimate website development organization, and it is not involved in the con. Second, the message repeats my email address several times, and the message tells me that I must update my account right now. But where does it try to send me? It tries to send me to secovilla.com, and in the process, it would pass my email address along to the page. So what the heck is secovilla.com? Well, it's a domain that is registered in Sri Lanka. Uh, no, my website is not in Sri Lanka. My website is in Utah. Not knowing whether this was an attempt to plant malware on my computer or just steal my credentials, I used a Windows PowerShell function to load the contents of the website into a text editor so that I could safely examine it. And what I found is that the page would display 
Welcome to TechBiter webmail in the title area. It would also display the TechBiter icon at the top of the browser, and the page would display a login form and populate the username field with my email address. It would then ask for my password. To further enhance the appearance that the form was legitimate, it would display a copyright date and TechBiter Corporation, by the way, TechBiter Corporation does not exist, it would put that information at the bottom of the form. Now, I give the crooks some extra credit for being clever enough to include TechBiter in the HTML comments. The comments wouldn't even appear on the page, but they would be visible to someone who's smart enough to examine the code. So overall, I have to give this scam an A-plus for effort and attention to detail. Including the TechBiter name in the comments is clever. It can fool somebody who knows enough to be able to examine the code, but not enough to recognize the scam for what it is. There was nothing in the code that looked like an attempt to plant malware, so the goal apparently was just to steal credentials. And then what? Well, if the crook had the ability to send messages as me, social engineering attacks would be likely to follow. The general rule, as always, applies here, and that rule is, and I quote, don't click links in messages that ask you to confirm something. Instead, log into the site as you normally would. You don't have to log into techbiter.com to read spare parts, but the only place you'll find it is on the website. This week, how about a Wi-Fi hotspot that looks like an umbrella? Or maybe a device that looks kind of like brass knuckles but lets you type on your tummy? Waze teams up with Allstate Roadside Services, and a new app allows ophthalmologists to monitor their patients at home. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.